Hello, and welcome to the first full episode of the Golden State Naturalist podcast. There was a preview episode last month. If you haven't had a chance, do pause this and go back and give that a listen. It gives a bit more information about California, what makes it special, a little bit more about the show. But if you're here right now, I want you to know that this podcast really is for anyone who has ever become curious about nature, who's ever been outside and wondered something like, what made these tracks? Or what insect is this? And what does it eat? Or what eats it? Or even how did these mountains come to be here? It's for anyone who has ever looked up into the branches of a giant sequoia or down into a tide pool and had words fail them completely. This is a show that celebrates wonder and curiosity. Each episode, you'll hear me talk to a California naturalist, maybe on a hike or maybe for a full interview. And we'll talk about a variety of different topics, geology, like this episode, native plants, fish and wildlife, and so much more from various bioregions all across the state of California. My name is Michelle Fulner. I recently finished my California Naturalist certification. And when I got done, I just really wanted to keep learning. I loved it so much. And I want to share that learning with others. And I'm so glad you're here listening today to the first full episode of the Golden State Naturalist podcast. So we just kind of came around a corner. We've been seeing all of the, the gray, the granitic rock with the speckly um, black and white. And then we came around the corner and it's just orange. There's all of this orange rock kind of going down toward the lake. What you're hearing here is audio from my outing with geologist Nate Manley. He's from the Sacramento region too, which is where I live. We met up on a cold and misty and kind of miserable Sunday morning at Folsom Lake. And we bundled up and we went for a hike looking at some of the different geological formations we could find. And as we walked, we were looking at all of this gray speckled black and white rock, which Nate told me is called granodiorite. It's actually the same kind of rock that Half Dome in Yosemite is made out of. So it shouldn't be orange. Yep, yep. So this is an area that I, I, I find geologically very interesting to me because it has a whole lot of story to tell in, in, in this spot. And it was really interesting to me when I first came upon this, I found this, this weird rusted out, but you can see that this rusted out rock has that same kind of speckly black and white yeah. texture. It's just, yeah. it's stained with this rusty red orange. And, and I wanted to know, well, why is it rusty red orange and why is it why do we have these other boulders that are very you know black and white speckly they're scattered uh, on top of scattered it. on top of it what what on earth is going on here that's giving this this big difference in visual texture of the rock so this is where being a geologist you don't instantly know sometimes you're going to have to do some research yeah. and so I poked around here for a good long time, and, and what you find is, is two things. The first is that this orange speckly, the stuff that's stained with this rusty red, that's, that rusty red is oxidation. So there are minerals, in fact, the dark colored minerals tend to have a, a, a fair amount of iron in them as a general rule. Mm -hmm. But to take those iron minerals, you have to oxidize them. So one way to do that is to expose them to extremely hot water, mm -hmm. hot fluids. We huh. call them geothermal fluids. Some people have probably heard of geothermal springs, hot right, springs. Right, right. Well, geothermal springs, when they come into contact, they usually have very strong uh, acidic components to them. And when they come into contact with some minerals, they'll break them down, they'll strip out the mm -hmm. iron, and that iron then gets exposed at the surface where it hits oxygen and it makes an iron oxide or rust. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what we're seeing here. But what you see is the rock with this oxidation in it. It's also much more rounded. There's no sharp edges on it. It actually yeah. looks like it's eroding away. Nate was not exaggerating when he said it looked like it was eroding away. If you got down on your hands and knees, it actually kind of looked like dirt. 
uh, just maybe with some pebbles mixed in. That's because it's chemically degraded. Huh. It's been it's been subjected to really high temperatures and hot fluids that are physically tearing apart the minerals and how they're interlocked with each other. This rock is literally eroding in before our eyes. Oh my goodness. It's coming apart. The question is, is why is it that happening here and not somewhere else? Right. As we were having this conversation, we were standing right on the boundary between the gray rock and the orangified rock. My favorite part of this was when Nate took out his rock hammer to demonstrate the difference. So if I go to the boundary, my rock hammer, thunk, thunk, and I got this deep sort of hollow thunky noise. And you can see it kind you, of moving as if like really it. hard earth and would move. And yeah, and it's crumbling apart. If I use the pick of my mm. hammer, it just crumbles apart into, into flakes. Ow. But if I go just a few inches away, right here, it doesn't have any of this deformation. It's not been all turned to rust. And listen to the sound of this with my rock hammer. And it is solid. It, it is, is just super solid. The, the hammer bounces back. Exactly. So what caused this radical difference between these two examples of the same kind of rock just inches away from each other. Well, there are two plutons, the Penryn pluton, which is older, and the Rockland pluton, which is younger. If you're not sure what a pluton is, imagine an underground magma chamber that cools and crystallizes extremely slowly. And there are points in which the two of them are overlapping. Oh. And so what we're seeing here is the older Penryn pluton mm -hmm. has been intruded by the younger Rockland pluton. So when that, you have to imagine, again, we're deep underground, and so we have this big blob of magma of the Rockland pluton that's pushing up, and it's pushing up in different spots, and it's coming into contact with this older by say nine million years older, Penryn Pluton. Mm -hmm. Nate pointed out to me that nine million years is not actually all that different in geologic terms. Both of these Plutons are in the neighborhood of 130 million years old. The age difference between the two becomes more important when they interact with each other. Okay, back to the slightly older Penryn Pluton. It's been there and has already had time to cool and solidify mostly. And as this new intrusion of hot rock comes in, it's also interacting with any water and fluids that are carried within the magma itself. And those hot fluids are actually pushing, but you think of it a pressure cooker. Yeah. And so you have these hot fluids being forced up and through this older section of Penryn Pluton. And that's what's creating these, this difference in texture is that the Penryn Pluton was basically cooked and tortured and chemically eaten oh by goodness. the fluids that were coming off of the Rockland Pluton. So what we see here in really stark contrast is the overlapping of an older geologic feature and a younger geologic feature. With that mystery solved, Nate and I kept walking. All told, I think we walked around for about an hour and a half looking at the geology around Folsom Lake, talking about soil types and so many other topics that I'm gonna get into at the end of the episode. I'll tell you a little bit more about that, but I couldn't fit them all in here because I wanted to get to the full interview. Nate and I found a spot to sit on a big piece of granodiorite and it was so cold outside and we sat there for over an hour and talked about everything from plate tectonics to the San Andreas Fault to how California got to be here. And it was just such a fascinating conversation. I can't wait to share it with you. Nate's expertise shines through in this interview. He's got his bachelor's in geology from Humboldt State and his master's in geology from Sacramento State. He's also just incredibly enthusiastic and maybe deserves an award for sticking it out through this freezing cold interview. There's a lot more geology coming your way right after this quick break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now on to the interview. First question I want to ask you is just how did you initially get interested in geology? What was kind <laughs> of the path that led you to it? Geology is something that appealed to me because of my interests in the outdoors. I started off in college thinking I wanted to be in exercise physiology and went to UC Davis right out of high school to study that. Didn't find it nearly as interesting as I had hoped. Took a couple of geology classes and thought those were really interesting, but somebody said, well, there's no money in that. You shouldn't be a geologist. And for some reason, I believed them at the time. <laughs> and then I spent some years working. Uh, I was very into cycling for a long time and, and still am and worked for some bike shops. And then I got interested in rock climbing and in mountaineering and really loved big landscapes mm-hmm. and big mountains and big spaces. Those, those are the things that motivate me and, and I find fascinating and, and really speak to my inner soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in that, I actually spent a little time working as a mountaineering guide on Mount Shasta. And there were two things that came about. One is that people would always ask, well, you know, why is that ridge that way or what's going on with that mountain or what's going on there and and I would learn a little bit about it and get to tell clients what was going on the other thing is I loved teaching people I loved talking about the things that they were seeing and the skills that we needed to learn to be able to mountaineer safely and those two things together I thought you know I would really like to know more about geology and I would like to teach it because I think it would be a really fun thing to teach so that's where I got my start in geology, was really just loving landscapes and loving the idea of being able to understand what's around me and then share it with others. At this point, Nate went back to school to get his degrees in geology. When he was done, he taught community college for a while, and now he works as an outdoor educator for the California Montessori Project. When we were on our walk, Nate mentioned how geology encompasses more than a lot of times people realize. It's more than about just rocks. So when we sat down for our interview, I asked him about this. But I just was wondering if you could expand on that and just say, like, what is geology for somebody who might not know? Well, geology literally is the study of the earth. So geo, earth, ology, study of. And it really is all of the earth. Geology encompasses it all from the very small to the very large. What thrills me about geology, of course, is the big landscapes and understanding how things fit together and that big picture. That's that's what I find interesting. But there are different sub-disciplines within geology. You can study the formation of rocks. You can study the processes that create sedimentary rocks or sedimentary layers. You can study geologic structures, things like faults and earthquakes and fractures in rocks. You can study the geochemistry of rocks. There's an entire branch of geophysics. How do seismic waves travel through the earth? And what is the interior of the earth really made of? What's it look like? Some of these things are very theoretical sort of abstract stuff that you work on in a lab and you work on with big computers and some of it is out there on your hands and knees with a magnifier and a rock hammer looking at the stuff around you. So geology is everything in between. There's the shape of a landscape, an entire branch of geology called geomorphology. It's how is the landscape shaped the way it is? What processes shape landscapes from glaciers to rivers to wind All of these things are in that realm of geomorphology. So geology is a a really big science, and there are lots of subsets of geology that you can really dig into. 
One of the things that struck me when I was talking to Nate about geology is just how incredibly interdisciplinary it is. So you're dealing with these blobs of magma miles beneath the surface, and so much physics goes into that. And then you're looking at these tiny, tiny little samples and thinking about the actual chemical makeup of different rock types. And so you have so many different sciences all integrated into one when you're doing geology. So next question, and this is a big one, because this is an entire theory. And I think you mentioned when you talked to my naturalist class, this is kind of a unifying theory for your whole discipline. Is there a way to give a, a brief overview of plate tectonics? Is there, <laughs> is there, like there bite-sized version of that? Sure, we, we can try. So plate tectonics is a really important unifying theory that is actually relatively young in terms of, of the science itself. It was really developed in the 1960s where we really were able to put together enough evidence to, to show that that's what's, that's what's how the world works or how our world works. Plate tectonics does not work on every planet. Hmm. Um, so there are planets that in which they don't have tectonic plates. I've never thought about that before. Yeah, that. And it, Mars is a dead planet in the sense that it doesn't have tectonic activity. Mm -hmm. Things aren't moving and shaking like they are here. Early plate tectonics was sort of postulated, although it wasn't called plate tectonics, because it's really easy to look at the shape of the planet Earth and realize that, hey, you know what? South America and Africa look like they ought to fit together. The top of Africa looks like it should tuck in beneath North America. Europe looks like it should fit together. Early geologists realized a long time ago that Earth's continents look like they fit together a little bit like puzzle pieces. They just didn't know how. Mm -hmm. We've since begun to understand how, what the process is, and we understand more about the interior of the Earth. And Earth is broken up into large plates. There are 12 or 13 major plates, and then there are a number of little micro plates. And all of these things are acting like bumper cars, and they're sliding around not perfectly, but they're sliding around on a layer of the Earth way below the crust and a layer of the Earth called the asthenosphere. And the asthenosphere is, for lack of a better term, squishy. It's not quite rock, it's not quite solid, but it's not really quite liquid either. It's not molten lava. Hmm. It's a material that behaves ductily or plastically. Hmm. It kind of moves like extremely thick oatmeal. Okay. And the plates are able to slide over this surface and move around. Now, Earth's interior has a lot of heat. There's a lot of residual heat. We have a liquid inner core, or outer core, and a solid inner core of mostly metallic components. But that heat is flowing out, and that heat comes up, and it causes things to shift around. It doesn't come up evenly all the way around the Earth. And so that's pushing things apart. So there are places on Earth in which plates are being pushed apart. And when they come apart, new magma comes up and creates new, new plate. It creates new seafloor in most places. Then there are places where plates are being pushed together. Uh, we call that a convergent boundary. When that's happening, different things can happen. If you have two continents run into each other, what will happen is a huge mountain range, which is how we get the Himalayas. You have basically the Indian subcontinent running into Eurasia, and that's creating a huge chain of mountains that's pushed up. More often though, we have parts of plates that are overlain by ocean, and those are being pushed underneath other plates, sometimes within oceans, sometimes at the edge of continents. And on those convergent boundaries, we have plates that are being pushed underneath, and the plate that gets pushed down back into Earth's mantle uh, are kind of recycled. They're mm -hmm. starting to come apart and melt. Do they go um, back to the oatmeal? They kind of go back to the oatmeal. Yeah, that's, that's one way of thinking about it. They also create magma. They create liquid material as they're being pushed up. And some of those liquid materials, the, the lava, lava's technically on the surface. It's called magma. So if you're trying to impress your friends, especially if you're friends with any geologists, remember magma is underground, lava is on the surface. The magma will rise, being that it's more buoyant, and it will rise through 
that oatmeal and it can burn its way through Earth's crust and it can emerge as volcanoes or it can get stuck underground in what we call igneous intrusive bodies. So we have plates that are coming apart, we have plates that are being pushed back together again, and then we have a third type of boundary, and that is where plates aren't really being pushed together or being pulled apart, rather they are sliding past one another. We call those transform boundaries. So to recap, the outer layer of the Earth is moving around and sometimes moving apart and sometimes smashing together and sometimes moving past. National Geographic defines plate tectonics as a scientific theory that explains how major landforms are created as a result of Earth's subterranean movements. So the stuff that's going on under the surface, all this moving around and the crashing is how continents are created and it explains everything about why the Earth's features are the way that they are and why things are located in the places that they are on the Earth. So for example, why a mountain range is in a certain spot. Maybe it's because two continents crash together. Now remember, a transform boundary is when two plates are sliding past one another. And there are lots of small transform boundaries on Earth, but there are a couple of really big transform boundaries on Earth. One of those being the San Andreas Fault right here in California, which separates the North American plate from the Pacific plate over the space of about 800 miles in length, it is the longest transform fault on land uh, on the planet. Wow. So I asked Nate which plate was moving in which direction, and he said really they're moving relative to each other. So if you were standing on the Pacific side of the San Andreas Fault and there was a massive earthquake, you would move to the north and west of the North American plate. The California Naturalist Handbook points out that if you were to stick around in LA for long enough, say for a couple million years, you would actually end up west of San Francisco. So that's a transform boundary. There's also divergent, which are the ones that are pulling apart, and convergent, which are the ones that are smashing together. And they told me that there is some convergent action happening in California too. In the far northern part of California, we still have a convergent boundary. We have a small sliver of plate called the Gorda Plate, which belongs to part of a, a larger plate complex called the Juan de Fuca Plate. And that's being pushed underneath the North American plate, north of Cape Mendocino. Nate told me that in Cape Mendocino, where you have that convergent boundary, there's also one of the extreme ends of the San Andreas Fault which makes that area something called a triple junction. So you've actually got three plates meeting right there. Now, if you follow the San Andreas from there all the way down, you get to kind of further inland and almost all the way to the Mexico border. So the San Andreas Fault spans almost the entirety of the state of California. So I'm trying to visualize mentally the North American continent and how California fits into that picture. And I'm wondering, in the context of how long that continent has been together, has California always been part of the continent? Or is this a later addition to the puzzle? Yeah, that's a good question. So the San Andreas Fault dominates our current geology, mostly. But up until about 25 million years ago, all of California was dominated by a convergent boundary. We had a plate called the Farallone Plate being pushed underneath the North American Plate. And you have to imagine that throughout its geologic history, California actually wasn't really here. California was sort of mostly underwater in its early geologic history. So if you looked at the continent, would it look like North America just without California? like? Or it there, would be very different. Very yeah, different. Much, okay. much of the West Coast wouldn't, wouldn't really be anything like what we know now. It would be very hard to visualize that. Yeah. So kind of going back more than 250 million years ago, most of Earth's continents were kind of smushed together on one side of the planet. And we call that supercontinent a Pangaea. Beginning around 200 million years ago, Pangaea started to break apart things started moving, and North America and South America started breaking away from 
Europe and Africa. And they started spreading along what is now the Atlantic Basin. So that's a divergent boundary there. On the west coast, there wasn't a whole lot going on prior to 200 million years ago. But at some point, that boundary changed and a a convergent boundary started to form. And the Farallone Plate was pushing underneath North America. And when that happens, you have to imagine that anything that was on top riding on that Farallone Plate... So any chains of islands, if you can kind of imagine Japan or even Hawaii for, for that matter, anything that was on that plate is slowly moving towards the edge of the North American continent. And when it collides with that, some of those things are scraped off, kind of like a snowplow. And North America is acting as the blade of the snowplow whereas the Farallone plate is kind of like the road surface. Anything on the road surface gets scraped off and pushed up against the blade of the snowplow. So a great deal of California is composed of materials that are essentially scraped off the seafloor and smushed onto the continent in a process called continental accretion. Okay, so I want you to imagine something with me for a second. Pretend you're washing your hands and you get them all bubbly and sudsy. And before you rinse them off, you take your hands up and you place them fingertip to fingertip. So your elbows are out, your your fingers are touching directly toward each other. And I want you to now see all the bubbles on them. And imagine your left hand is the Farallon plate. That's that ancient plate that isn't really there anymore. There's parts of it left, we call them different things. But that was the one that was going under the North American plate or subducting under the North American plate. So now your left hand still touching the fingertips of your right hand starts to slide underneath. And as you slide your hands together, the left one's going underneath the right one, just like the ancient Farallon plate did. And as you're pushing your right fingertips up the top of your left hand, all of those bubbles are massing up on your right fingertips. All of those bubbles represent everything that was on the seafloor of the Farallon plate. Or maybe it was islands, or maybe it was little sea critters and things like that. And as that's pushing up, you're getting a mountain range right there on your fingertips of your right hand. That is what we now think of as the coast range. So the coast range, that's called accretion, where you have all that stuff that gets pushed up there. The coast range is made up of all kinds of stuff that used to be seafloor. So going to the coast range and looking at rocks and looking at stuff that's there is fascinating because you have this crazy mix of what was on the North American continent, your right hand, with all of those bubbles there, mixing together with everything that was all the bubbles on your left hand, smushing together and making that big old bubble cloud on your fingertips. Another thing is happening at the same time. We have to remember that as we have a plate being pushed underneath North America, once it reaches a certain depth, it starts to melt. Mm. And the molten parts of that, the magma, can push back up through and it'll burn its way through the crust. And some of that will reach the surface and create a chain of volcanoes. We call that a continental volcanic arc. Okay, so now if we continue my metaphor, uh, your left hand now, your fingertips are way down below your right hand, and I'm sorry, but they're melting, and they're turning into magma, and they're bubbling up through your right hand, and starting to form volcanoes on your right hand. So the metaphor breaks down a little bit, but you can kind of visualize what I'm talking about. So what you might think of early California looking like say from 200 million years of age all the way to maybe 65 million years of age might look a lot like what South America currently looks like, Mm. the west coast of South America. So we have a very fast active convergent boundary where the Nazca plate is being pushed underneath South America. And we have a chain of volcanoes that runs parallel to that boundary, the Andes Mountains. Mm. So you have this entire universe of big volcanoes and things being pushed underneath that 
And you can kind of imagine California being somewhat like that for a good portion of its geologic history. So that volcanic range is actually the modern Sierra Nevada. To recap, what's happening on the western side of California is accretion, all the stuff getting smushed together. And what's happening on the eastern side of California is the magma bubbling up and through and making volcanoes. So that's why we have those two big, beautiful mountain ranges rimming the Great Valley in California. And then the Great Valley is a little bit of another story. Nate explained that for a long time, between the coast range and the Sierra Nevada, or proto-Sierra Nevada at the time, was just water. And what gradually happened is that sediments from both ranges flowed down to the middle, and eventually they started to come up above sea level, creating the valley that we know and love today. So that's where we get that beautiful, fertile valley where we can grow all these crops. Absolutely. it's all has to do with the, the sediment supply coming from mostly the Sierra Nevada side, but also from the coast ranges. If you were to take a soil sample in the Central Valley somewhere, would you be able to tell whether it came from the coast ranges or the Sierras Absolutely. based on the composition? Absolutely, yeah. You would be able to tell based on the geologic history of that, that rock, whatever the chemistry or the composition of its minerals. You would be able to look and see whether that was derived from volcanic processes or from erosional processes or from accretionary processes and you would look at if it's marine sediments it's going to be a different set of minerals than if it is terrestrial sediments coming off of a mountain range. So a history in every teaspoon. So the Great Valley is just one of the geomorphic provinces we have here in California. Nate said that there's 11 or 12 depending on how you define them. I asked him what his favorite was and he had to think about this a little bit because there's something really interesting in each of them. For example, he said the coast range is fascinating to walk around because of all that accretion and everything that came off off the seafloor and all the mixing with what was happening on the North American plate. It's a really interesting place to check out. But one province did come to mind in particular for him. I find the Basin and Range province to be one of my favorites. Where's the Basin and Range? Basin and Range, we have slivers of it on the edge, uh, on the eastern edges of California. Okay. The Basin Range is primarily getting into Nevada, but okay. we have slivers of it. And the geologic forces at work out there are such that the geology is more, uh, more laid out for you to see. So you get bigger pictures, bigger forces at work across larger scales, and, and it's really a joy to kind of explore and, and see these big vistas. So I think the Basin and Range, if I have to pick a favorite, is, is sort of my go-to choice as one of the places that I like to visit because the geology is relatively easier to understand, mm -hmm. but exposed in a, in a really beautiful way. Do you have any special favorite spots in the Basin and Range area? Oh, I, I love visiting Death Valley. Oh. Um, it is a truly amazing place. Mosaic Canyon, Titus Canyon, Marble Canyon, these are these are places that not all the tourists actually get to see, but the geology in Death Valley is so wonderfully diverse and it's so laid out for everyone to see because in a desert environment, you don't have all the vegetative cover. So the rock tends to be much more visible and, and you can really appreciate all the sedimentary layers and the geologic structures and the complexity of what's gone on in the, in the earth history there. So there's something to look closely at, and then you can also get those big, beautiful vistas. All of it, all of it's there in Death Valley in, in really big ways. I have not been to Death Valley. It is on my list. I need to get there. Just go in the spring or the winter, yeah. not go in the summer. <laughs> Don't it's, die. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Bring lots of water. But get off into, there are huge numbers of Jeep roads. So if you have a, a four-wheel drive off-road capable vehicle. It's not severe off-road. Mm -hmm. Well, a few places are, but if you get off in those areas, you will see and appreciate a landscape in a way that most people who visit Death Valley just won't. Hmm. 
Once you get away from the tourist areas, it's an amazing, huge views, almost dead silent. It's an almost eerie silence wow. out there. And there's probably not a lot of people who are out there around you. Hardly any. You're kind of if you see people. one person in an entire day in some of these areas, that, that would be a lot. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's hard to imagine that as a Californian sometimes. It's really hard to imagine, but Death Valley is enormous. It can take you more than a day of driving to get from the far north end to the far south end, depending on how far you want to go. It's wow. It's quite extensive. Oh my goodness. It's larger, as a national park, it's larger than some states on the east coast. Wow. I had no idea it was that big. Okay, grab a pencil or open your notes app or something like that, because Nate gave me a whole bunch of great places that you can visit here in California to see really cool geology. So of course he already mentioned Death Valley, Another one that he said that was in the Great Valley province is the Sutter Buttes. We actually have the smallest mountain range in the entire world, right here about an hour north of Sacramento. He talked about Lassen National Park and how it has active geothermal features, so definitely check that out. Also Northern California. Um, the Coast Range is undergoing active erosion all the time, so you're always seeing cool new rocks breaking off. And it's also got that variable geology because it's where all that stuff got pushed up onto the coast from the seafloor. So there's tons of different cool rocks to look at. He said a great example of that is Trinidad State Beach, way up in far northern California. One other place that he mentioned is on the east side of the Sierra Nevada. He said it's absolutely beautiful over there. And in particular, there's a place called Convict Lake. I'll let him tell you a little bit more about that named for a group of outlaws that hold up there trying to elude the law at one point in time. But the lake itself sits in a really unique part of the Sierra Nevadas where you have these granitic intrusions, but you have something called a roof pendant, which is a chunk of the rock that was there before all this magma came up and mm. surrounded it. And that rock is still there. And in fact, it forms the side of an entire mountain that you can see from across the lake. Wow. And it's a radically different set of geologic features and layers. So you have sedimentary layers that have been cooked by the heat of the Sierra Nevadas and transformed. But you have these beautiful colors and contrasts of layers of rock in this mountainside. And it's, it's tremendous to see. I don't really have any strong need to go tour other parts of the world to see geology. Pretty much I could spend a lifetime just exploring the geology here in California and be perfectly happy about it. Wow, that's, that's saying a lot. My big takeaway here is that I just feel incredibly lucky to live in this state where I will never run out of cool geology to look at. If you're listening to this and don't live in California, I hope that this can still be helpful to you in case you ever visit, and now you'll have this amazing list of places to go. Okay, we're gonna shift gears here a little bit and go back to the San Andreas Fault. We talked about it a little bit earlier when we were talking about plate tectonics, but I wanted to go more in depth with it and learn a little bit more about this fault because it's notorious. We talked a little bit about the San Andreas Fault and about how it is the longest on-land transform boundary in the world. And so I guess like we talked a little bit about what made it special. What makes it infamous? <laughs> well, um, it's certainly infamous for a number of earthquakes that have occurred on there. So the San Andreas Fault has been moving and shifting for millions of years. And there are sections that are offset by hundreds of miles because it's been it's moved that far and it so in, in that alone is, is just fascinating to see how much of California's landscape has been transformed and literally moved by the San Andreas Fault. So one example of this movement that Nate is talking about is Pinnacles National Park. If you've never seen it before it is this beautiful sort of outcrop of this reddish brown rock sticking out of the ground like fingertips. And this rock found just to the southeast of Monterey is echoed in a place 200 miles to the south. 
So what happened is the San Andreas Fault separated these two halves of the same rock formation, and now they are 200 miles apart from each other. I think the most infamous part of the San Andreas Fault, of course, is the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, the Great San Francisco Earthquake. Mm -hmm. One thing you have to remember about faults is that faults don't move a little bit at a time. Good portions of their history, they remain locked Mm -hmm. for hundreds, uh, sometimes thousands of years, where the plates are stuck together. And the plates are still trying to move, but the energy is locked up and the friction between the two plates is keeping them stuck. And it's when they come unstuck that we have these massive earthquakes. So in April of 1906, almost the entire northern half of the San Andreas Fault moved at once. Um, 296 miles going from Cape Mendocino all the way to San Juan Batista, which is down near Hollister, moved all at once. The initiation of the earthquake was just offshore of San Francisco, so the epicenter of the earthquake. Mm-hmm. That's the part where it first started to rupture and from which all of this energy was starting to be released. Mm-hmm. But the fault itself slipped for 296 miles. It slipped anywhere from several feet to places kind of up near what now is Point Reyes. There's sections that saw 32 feet of Ooh. slip in one shot. So imagine if you were on at that point in that point in time, you were standing on the fault and your friend was standing on the other side of the fault. At that location in a matter of seconds, your friend would have moved to the right 32 feet all at once. That is a, a massive amount of energy release over a very long section of fault. The total shaking, the violent shaking, uh, occurred over a matter of 40 to 60 seconds Mm -hmm. within San Francisco. But that energy released was felt through multiple states. Much of the western United States felt the shaking. So there's people in Nevada feeling shaking. Absolutely. And seismographs around the world recorded that earthquake. Wow. So it's a, it was a substantial earthquake. The magnitude, which at that point we had a different magnitude scale than what we have now, but the magnitude was estimated as being a 7.9. The scale then was called a, the Richter scale. Mm-hmm. We now would call it just magnitude. Mm-hmm. By comparison, the Loma Prieta earthquake, which a lot of Bay Area folks remember, was only a magnitude 6.9. Wow. Side note, I do remember this earthquake. I was three years old, and my mom and my brother and I were all curled up on the couch watching Sesame Street together, and it was the guys with the noses that honk. I don't know what they're called. But it was not that scary to me at the time. I lived in Napa, so I didn't feel the worst of the shaking. But I think my mom was a little more freaked out. So depending on how you look at the energy released, it's somewhere between eight and 10 times less energy was released in the Loma Prieta than in the Great San Francisco, the 1906 earthquake. The Loma Prieta only ruptured 25 miles of the fault and it didn't even rupture the surface. It was all confined underground rather than all the way to the surface. So there was no surface displacement. But yet it was a hugely disastrous earthquake at a magnitude 6.9. I mean, I think the images of the Bay Bridge still haunt a lot of us who grew up in the Bay Area. But but that would be peanuts Mm -hmm. compared to having another 1906 event. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's really hard to picture that. For the record, my mom was correct to be more freaked out by this earthquake than I was. The upper deck of the Bay Bridge completely collapsed. You've probably seen the images of this. 63 people died, and an estimated $6 billion in property damages occurred during this 1989 earthquake. Now, to be clear, Nate is not saying that this earthquake wasn't a big deal. He's saying, think about how big that was. Now imagine 8 to 10 times more energy released in the 1906 earthquake. It's hard to imagine the amount of devastation in the city of San Francisco after that earthquake and then the subsequent fires as well. Nate says that despite the improvement of building standards since 1906, we have so much population density now that if we were to experience the same kind of thing, the devastation would be unthinkable. And then 
If you really want to not sleep at night, when you think about the San Andreas Fault, there was no geologic measurements at the time, but there are historical records in 1857 of the southern section of the San Andreas Fault rupturing in what's called the Fort Tejon earthquake. They estimate that at a magnitude 8.3. Wow. Based on what estimates, what evidence was available. And the southern section hasn't moved since. Ooh. So extending from the south end of the Carrizo Plain all the way down into Southern California and out towards the Imperial Valley. And um, what year was this? 1857. 1857. Um, so that hasn't, that hasn't moved since. I asked if this large gap since the last major earthquake meant that we're due anytime soon for another major earthquake. And Nate said we have to be really careful when we start trying to predict earthquakes because it's really impossible to do. But what they can do is forecast that there's a pretty good probability of a large earthquake in California sometime in the next 50 years. We don't know when in the next 50 years that might be. It really could be any time. And we don't know exactly how big that large earthquake might be. One way to think about it perhaps is imagine sitting on a very grainy rock, kind of like we are right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we have a large, heavy box on top of that rock. And we start pushing on it. And it's a very heavy box and we have a very gritty, high friction surface. It's almost impossible to know at what precise moment the energy we're putting into trying to move the box will suddenly be overcome and the box will start moving. And then often it moves a lot at once. And a lot it moves at once because you've put all this energy into it. Imagine if it was a slightly flexible box. Mm -hmm. So now you've, you've kind of bent the box mm -hmm. and, and you're putting energy and now there is elastic energy built up in that box and then it slips. Not only have you got the energy you're currently pushing on it, but you also have the elastic energy that was stored within the box itself. That's going to suddenly move. And it's very easy. You know, we can kind of relate to this as humans. You know, you're pushing on it, you're pushing on it, it's not moving. You push on it and suddenly it moves way too far. The same kind of applies for an earthquake. So it's very, very difficult to know at what point that's going to happen. What we do know and what we can tell is that we can look at faults and we can do studies across faults and we can look at how sediments are offset along a fault. And if we can date the age of the sediments and look at the number of offsets that have occurred, then we can get a sense of what we call the recurrence interval, which is how many times has the fault moved over, let's say, a thousand years of mm -hmm. time or 10,000 years of time. And we can kind of get an average idea of a section of the fault will move on average once every, uh, let's say, 300 years. Mm -hmm. That's just a rough example, not a specific to the San Andreas. So we can get a sense of what is likely to happen. But when we say the recurrence interval is 300 years, we mean, hey, it could be 150 or it could be 500 years, mm -hmm. but the sort of general average is three. So there are things that we are within the timeline of the recurrence interval. On the north coast, which actually I think is quite scary, we, have, we still have a subduction zone. And subduction zones, you, you could think of them as the same friction problem, actually even more so like the box on top of the rock. And subduction zones, they get locked up as well. Mm. And when they release, they release in really big ways. Mm. And so your magnitudes are even larger in subduction zones than they typically are on transform faults. So we could be seeing magnitude 8s or 9s on a major subduction zone earthquake along the north coast of North America. Anything from Cape Mendocino all the way up into Oregon, Washington, and, and British Columbia. Wow. And we know from geologic records that what the recurrence interval is roughly. And we are within the window of what that ought to be. So we're kind of due, geologically speaking. But again, that could be 100 years from now, could be tomorrow. Right. As um, a teacher, I know that when something is due, that doesn't mean it's going to get turned in. 
immediately. <laughs> That's exactly a really good analogy, but yes, I love it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's very difficult to really know when those things are. Okay. But it's certainly something that we, we study uh, intensely. And, you know, on the positive side, our technology, our building standards are much improved. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a mindfulness there's a, a about these bit of things. Mindfulness. And I, th- I think one of the things that I think is important for people to realize sometimes is that government rules uh, aren't necessarily there just to make life inconvenient for you. Mm-hmm. Um, they're there to protect life and limb. Many of the first building standards in California were a direct result of major seismic events. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can name the year and you can name the event and the legislation that followed. So we learn things in mm-hmm. every earthquake. We learn something new and we learn, hey, you know what, that, that engineering standard wasn't enough. Right. Um, and we step those up. And now we have warning systems that, while if you're right next to the epicenter of an earthquake and it goes off, you're going to have no warning. It's, right. it's just going to happen. But if you are 50 miles away from the epicenter, the way seismic waves move through the Earth, there's a group of waves that move way faster, and, mm. there's a, and the more destructive waves tend to move a little bit slower. And with modern technology, we can actually have it set up, and in some places we do, where we can get out a few seconds to maybe 30 seconds of warning mm. time by text message, by SMS alert that says, hey, you know what, batten down the hatches, mm-hmm. you're about to experience a damaging shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, Get under a table, stand in a door, like that kind of thing? Is that, that sort, sort of... of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Generally under the table is, is good. Underneath something is better than doorways. Doorways is okay. kind of a misnomer. Actually. Oh, really? really? Okay. That's a good one to not, dispel. Don't not, stand in a doorway. Not a, not that great of an idea. And, you know, it depends on where you are, but certainly finding something to keep from being hit in the head and mm-hmm. crushed under is, is preferable. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you also have to be careful. You know, you don't want to instantly run outside because if you live in in a place with tall buildings windows are going to shatter so this Um, is something to think about before it happens yes have a plan being aware of your of your seismic risk and what your plan is Mm -hmm. uh, is certainly super important here in the sacramento area our seismic risk is incredibly low Mm -hmm. it's not zero but the potential for major seismic uh, disruption is is fairly limited. Mm-hmm. So folks, throughout California, everyone should have a plan, kind of where to go, but you could be in a higher or lower risk area. Yeah, yeah. People living within the greater Bay Area, anything along the San Andreas Fault system, definitely higher risk. Mm-hmm. Anyone living along the coastline, pretty much anywhere in California, should be very aware of the seismic risks because... A seismic event that happens even on the north coast has the potential of, of affecting the south coast uh, by tsunami. Wow, yeah. Um, and you have to be aware of those hazards and, and what, what the risks are and how to stay safe. So again, if you live in California or really anywhere that experiences earthquakes, it's a really good idea to do a little research on the risk of your particular area and what you should do to stay safe. Okay, last question that I asked Nate is maybe my favorite one. I really loved his response to this question. What still inspires you? What still takes your breath away about geology? I don't really get tired of anything in geology. (laughs) I guess finding something new. Hmm. Not new in the sense that I don't know about it, but new in the sense that I came around the corner and discovered it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like what we did today. We walk around the corner and here is this weird feature with this rusty red rock and then this much harder gray rock and all of these fractures and seams of minerals. And there's a mystery there. And and it's interesting and it's weird and it's, what is this doing here? I think that's what I find so thrilling about geology is that there's always something new. And I don't treat geology as the thing that I do 
I don't do geology and then do something else. Mm-hmm. I'm always a geologist. I'm, I'm always have an eye on the things that are around me and being aware of what's going on. That moment to sit down and to just absorb what I see and ponder and, and wonder, why does it look like this? What's going on here? Those are the questions that I think really inspire me and keep me coming back and keep me uh, keep geology something that is fun to do. I spend most of my time now kind of more in the world of being a naturalist and, mm-hmm. and teaching uh, young kids in an outdoor program. So I don't really work as a true geologist anymore. And yet the geologic knowledge that I have is something that makes the world around me just that much more interesting. Mm-hmm. It gives me, it's like opening a book and everywhere I go, there's a different page to look at, some different picture to, to see and appreciate. So there's always something. That's amazing. I mean, geology is the whole earth, right? So there's, <laughs> there's always more to look at. Thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you. I love that answer because I think that all of us, regardless of our level of expertise, when we go outside and we start looking at the natural world, we can all engage with it in that way. We can all start to ask questions and experience wonder. And it's beautiful to me that even somebody who knows a lot and has all this training still experiences that. So keep asking questions, keep becoming more and more curious about the world around you, and keep learning more about it. Earlier, I mentioned that I wasn't going to be able to include everything in this episode that Nate and I talked about on our walk. There was just so much there. So here's a little sneak preview of what we talked about. Spheroidal weathering, information about extreme pressure situation deep underground when rocks are forming, uh, how geologists take samples and look at them in the lab, the chemical makeup of rocks, uh, a great story about a professor that Nate had who sat in a bush soil types and the influence on plant communities and how that's tied to geology and all of this information including more audio than I was able to fit in this episode and even a video of Nate with his rock hammer is going to be on Patreon. So my Patreon page is for folks who are wonderful supporters of the show and want me to be able to do this work and pay for gas money and the time and the equipment to be able to go out and get these interviews. So that's something a little bit extra for folks who are supporting the show. So please take a look at that. It is Michelle Fulner on Patreon. Michelle with two L's. Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. You can spend as little as $4 a month to get all that extra content. And there's also a few very helpful other things that you can do, such as rating and reviewing the podcast on your preferred listening app. You can also think of all of the nature lovers in your life and think of which ones you think might like a podcast and share this with them. You can try sharing it on social media or following me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram. Thank you also so much because I know people are already doing all of this. And the reason I know is because last month's preview episode made it into the top 10 nature podcasts on the charts, and it even dipped a toe into the top 100 overall science podcasts. So that was crazy. That exceeded my wildest expectations, especially as a totally independent podcaster. And I know it all happened because people have been rating and reviewing the show and sharing it with other people who might like it. So thank you so much. One more thing I want to note is that the story of the formation of California goes so much more into depth than what we were able to cover in this episode. So I would love to direct you to the show notes where you'll find a link to a page by the National Park Service where they actually go into transform plate boundaries and have all these amazing pictures and drawings showing um, various stages of the formation of California and subduction zones and all kinds of cool stuff like that. Speaking of subduction zones, Nate realized that we didn't really get into detail about what those were, and he wanted to add a little bit to that. So let me read you what he sent me in an email. He said, essentially a subduction zone is part of the convergent boundary where two plates are sliding over one another, one beneath the other. The plates, 
even more so than a transform boundary, are locked together, and the movement of the bottom plate causes the upper plate to flex, storing up energy. When the fault, subduction zone, finally does slip, all that stored energy is released. Because of their geometry, subduction zones tend to have greater potential for really high magnitude earthquakes, so 8 plus, than do transform boundaries. That is insane, and I wanted to add it in there so that you have a little bit more information about subduction zones, especially because there's one currently happening up near Cape Mendocino, so watch out in that area. The last thing I want to say, and this time I promise it's the last thing, is just thank you so much for joining me on the first episode. It's been a blast to make. I'm having so much fun recording more interviews and getting those edited into more episodes for you to enjoy. I am planning on starting out by posting every other week, mainly because I want to focus on quality over quantity. Hopefully I'll be able to move to a weekly format soon when I'm confident that I can do both things well. Thank you so much again for being here on the very first episode of the Golden State Naturalist podcast. See you next time. The song you just heard is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song as well as to the Creative Commons license in the show notes. Bye-bye.